You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. We serve a great God, amen? And what a privilege it is to be able to hold His Word in our laps and open it today. Romans chapter 13 is our, our text. Romans 13, we are in the final section here of Paul's letter, Romans. We've been studying it for some time now, and the final section is chapters 12 through 16, in which Paul has been applying all of that doctrine in chapters 1 through 11, all of the gospel message. He's been applying it to life. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he spoke of how this gospel affects our relationship with God, what should be our response to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, he talks about how we should view ourselves, not thinking too highly, uh, seeing ourselves as a part of the body of Christ. Verses 9 through 16, and he spoke of our relationships with one another. Verses 17 through 21, our relationship to even our enemies has been changed by the gospel that is in our hearts and lives now. And now here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, he's addressing our relationship to the state, to the governing authorities. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've been able to sing and express our hearts and desires, our thanksgiving for you, for your greatness, Lord, and and now, Lord, we rejoice in these moments that, that we, we pause, that we be still, that we seek to hear from you and from your word. And so, Lord, we invite you to speak to us this morning. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you step back and think about 
what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12 and 13 and beyond. It's very clear that the, the, the gospel, the mercies of God that he called it in chapter 12 verse 1 that he envisions this gospel to permeate every part of our lives. When Paul said, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he meant that no part of your life is to be left untouched by the gospel. That no thought, no words, no deeds, no relationship, no perspective... No part of our lives are to remain unaffected because of the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is never meant to be segmented or, or compartmentalized that where you have your life as you live it out through the week and you've got your job and your dating life or your married life and your money and your time and then on Sundays we come and we give this time to the Lord. That is not the picture of Christianity that the Bible teaches, that Paul is teaching here. He is showing us that Christ is to be Lord over all of our lives. It all comes under his subjection. There's no part of your life that you say, well, this part is over here and it doesn't belong to God, not as a believer. It's all under his subjection, his authority, his leadership. And so perhaps we're surprised as we come to Romans 13 and we learn that our relationship to the civil authorities is also affected by this lordship of Jesus in our lives. What Paul means by governing authorities, he's talking there about the state, if you will, our governing leaders, the, the, those who are over us, from our national leaders all the way down to our local authorities. Paul says that the gospel has implication on, our believe, on the believer's relationship to those who are in authority above him. That relationship between the, the church and state is one that has been uh, sort of controversial throughout uh, history. John Stott makes a good effort at explaining the various models or views that have been tried over the course of history. There are four of them, he mentions. Erastianism, which means that the state controls the church. Then we went the other way to a theocracy, where the church controls the state. And then Constant, uh, Constantinian view is, is a compromise in which the, the state favors the church and the church accommodates the state in order to retain that favor. And then the fourth view is what Stott called partnership, where the church and the state recognize and encourage each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a constructive collaboration, if you will. And I agree with Stott here. I think it's the fourth model that seems to be the closest to what Paul is describing here in Romans 13, where the church and the state have different roles that they play. And Christians have duties to both God and to the state. It seems to be what Jesus was teaching in the Gospels as well when you remember that, that, that episode uh, with the, uh, 
I can't remember if it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees, all those folks, but where he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We'll talk about that verse in just a minute, but it seems to remind us that we have duties to both. Rendering to God, rendering to Caesar, according to Jesus Christ. And Paul here, I think, is enlarging on what that means. What specific duties do we have to the state? How does the the gospel of Jesus Christ, our new life in Christ, affect our relationship with the governing authorities? How does a citizen of heaven live as a citizen of earth? Paul doesn't answer every single question that we might have about this topic, but he does uh, give us uh, quite a bit of instruction. Let's begin with Paul's main point. It's very apparent, verse 1, that we are to be subject to governing authorities. He says, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. To be subject means that we live in submission under the state's authority. It means that we obey our government. It means that we keep the laws of the land in which we, we, we live. We submit to the govern, governing authorities. Well, we as humans are not very good at this when it comes to submitting to authority, are we? I was thinking about Genesis 3 when Satan asked Eve in the garden, has God been telling you what to do? That's essentially what he said, wasn't it? Has he been telling you what to do? And Eve said, well, we're not to eat of that one tree in the middle of the garden or we'll die. And then Satan countered that uh, you don't have to listen to God. He doesn't want you to be like him. You can be your own boss Uh, he's afraid that you're going to eat of that tree and no good and evil, you'll be just like him. And all of a sudden, that fruit became delicious to her eyes. And she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was right there with her and he ate and the result was disaster, you understand. Every since uh, that day, every descendant of Adam and Eve has inherited a sinful nature, a, a... a rebellious nature. That is instinctively, I think, from birth, we resist authority. Any parent who remembers and who, who can think about the, the, uh, the, the twos and the threes uh, can affirm this teaching, right? With uh, all of the, the temper tantrums and the pouting smell, p- smells, I said, that too, and the spells open defiance from their kids that just seem to be like, where did that come from? Why is the first word that they learn to say, no? Um, they, they go off to school. They get uh, elated because they're, they're big now. But then they get to school and they have to listen to teachers who are always telling them what to do and where to stand and what to say and when to speak and when to sit down. One teenager got so fed up with his teachers lording it over him, he dropped out of school early and joined the army. (laughs) And that was worse because he had sergeants yelling at him all the time, barking out orders. He couldn't wait to get discharged and settle down and get married and not have anybody telling him what to do. From the cradle to... The grave, we resist authority, and it all stems from that sinful nature that 
lives in us, a rebellious nature. But a follower of Jesus Christ is one who has, remember Romans 12, 1, presented himself, herself to God as a living sacrifice. Paul says, and a part of this submission is subjecting ourselves to governing authorities. This means that we practice civil obedience. Christians are, 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 are to be models in keeping the law, paying their taxes, submitting to governing authorities. And remember when Paul wrote these words to the Roman Christians, they were under the heavy hand of imperial Rome. It's not like things were much better then. He gives several reasons in the text for doing this. First, we subject ourselves to acknowledge God's authority. He continues, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God is the only being in the universe that has ultimate authority. God's authority is eternal. God's authority comes from the fact that He is creator. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. God's authority rests in the fact that He created this world and everything in the world. He has ownership of it all. Sometimes a father will say to his and remind his teenage son something like this, I brought you into the world, I can take you out of it. That's not totally true, but it is of God, isn't it? The starting point for Paul's argument here and submitting to the authorities is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And, and Paul reminds us all authority ultimately flows from God. It's been delegated by God. Notice he says those authorities that exist have been instituted. That's the word he uses by God. Verse 2, God has appointed them. And it seems to me that's true of all authorities. Our, if you think about it, our society is built on on this, this basis of authorities in our lives. And the Scriptures teach us these things. The Scriptures teach us in marriage, wives submit to their husbands. Children obey their parents. In the workplace, employees submit to their bosses. And the church, congregants submit to their pastor. In the classroom, students submit to their teachers. Here in Romans 13, civilians submit to their governing authorities. The universe is not structured as a democracy, but as a theocracy. It is one in which God has the ultimate authority over this entire world. And He's delegated that authority. And we're to keep that authority. Kings, presidents, senators, representatives... Governing officials, they will all have to stand, as we just sang the first song, they will all stand before the king of kings one day and have to give an account 
Jesus reminded Pilate of this. John 19, verse 10, Pilate said to Jesus, this was during his trial, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's the right view. It's interesting, three days later, at Jesus' resurrection, Matthew tells us Jesus stood before his disciples. What did he say? He said, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and earth. We, we live in a world that is governed by Jesus Christ. He has delegated that authority throughout society, from presidents to policemen to parents, all the way down. And Paul says, when we disobey these lesser authorities in our lives, we are disobeying the authorities that God has established. We are disobeying God himself. It's pretty absolute. Now, there are many questions we could raise at this point, and I'm sure you've got several in your mind, but what about if the government is evil? Do we have to submit to them? Aren't there limits? Uh, are there limits to what must be obeyed? And of course there are, are limits, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but it's interesting, the place to begin is not limits, but lordship, isn't it? This is where he starts it's recognizing the authority of God and His delegates, and our default position is always submission. It's always submission because our submission to lesser authorities reflects our submission to the greatest authority who is God. Secondly, we submit to governing wraths, he says, to avoid God's wrath. Verse 2, those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's quite a warning, isn't it? It tells us something here about the role of government. What Paul calls them in verse 4, he says they're, he calls them God's servant for our good. And he also calls them, uh, secondly, a servant of God. But literally, it means minister of God. The government is a minister of God, he says who does not bear the sword in vain. The idea of the sword is an idiomatic expression that, that really is referring to capital punishment, isn't it? The point of government is to restrain evil by force, if necessary. And Paul is saying that governments are needed to hold people accountable to, to live in a way that makes it possible for us all to live together, for us to function in an orderly way in, in society. This certainly has implications for our views of capital punishment and when it's right perhaps to engage in war. I think the state is given power to defend its citizens here by the sword from enemies on the outside, but also evildoers on the inside. 
And Paul's focus is the latter. The government has been given power to establish, exercise, maintain justice. That is, they reward good behavior and they punish bad behavior. That's what he says. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. Do what is right. Follow the law. Submit to the governing authorities. You won't have to incur their judgment, he says. And again, this should raise some questions as we're thinking through this. Well, who determines what's good and bad? Uh, As he says there, verse 3 and 4. Paul's argument here apparently rests on a belief that there are such things as good and evil in this world, right? But who gets to determine that? What is the basis of that truth? Surely Paul understands the tensions here, and yet he's so matter-of-fact in in the way that he presents this. And and after all, again, he's writing under a time when uh, the governing authorities he's talking about were at best unfriendly and, and very quickly growing more and more hostile to the church. It wouldn't be much longer, in fact, that Paul himself would receive the sword, not for bad behavior, but for being a believer. And Christ. And so once again, Paul is speaking here. I think it's reminding us that he's speaking generally here. This is the general idea of how this should work. This is a Christian's default position. It's always to submit to the governing authorities in order to avoid God's wrath, the sword of the government. He gives a third reason to do so, verses 5 and 6, and that is to act according to one's God-given conscience. Notice verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities, he repeats it again, are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. The word conscience means something like with knowledge. With knowledge, it has to do with one's heart or your inner motivations, your inner convictions. Paul uses this word some 20 times in the New Testament. Here's one example, 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says this, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God of God. His boast was that he had acted according to his conscience. He had acted according to a knowledge in his heart. When you become a Christian, God writes his law on your heart. He quickens your conscience. You become sensitive to his word. The inclinations, the desires of your heart shift away from that rebellion to wanting, desiring to be obedient to the word of God, the spirit of God as it works in you. This means that that creates tension in us, in our flesh, our desire to, and our conscience to do what is right according to God's word. And it means sometimes it's very inconvenient, unpopular, or hard. This past week, I think, was the tax deadline. I guess I should know that. I don't know of anyone who just loves to pay taxes. Wishes you could pay a lot more of it. 
But taxation is necessary. We all have opinions about how much is necessary, right? I spoke on Wednesday about the U.S. Treasury's Federal Conscience Fund. It's a fund that was set up many years ago to receive anonymous payments from people who felt guilty about not being honest about their taxes. One of those letters I shared to the Bureau of Internal Revenue went something like this. I haven't been able to sleep because last year when I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income. So I'm enclosing a check for $150, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's how the conscience works, isn't it? It's the government's right to tax. And Paul says here, it's our responsibility to pay them. And it's a matter of Christian conscience that encourages us to do so, to submit to the governing authorities. I would remind you again that the people who originally received this letter from Paul were being crushed under the burden of Roman taxation. Crushed. And nevertheless, Paul says, pay your taxes. When Jesus' opponents tried to trip him up, remember they tried at this very juncture to cause him to stumble so that they could catch him, trap him, and pit him against the Roman authorities. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, they asked him. And you remember, he said, show me a coin. And they brought him a coin, and he said, whose picture's on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When Paul speaks of the matter of the Christian conscience, he, he, he does so uh, reminding us that, that our chief allegiance and devotion is always to God and His Word, isn't it? Leon Morris writes this, Conscience is a powerful reinforcement of the outward directions to submit to the state. But once conscience is brought in, there is a limit What is against one's conscience cannot be done. Conscience at one and the same time obliges us to be obedient and sets a limit to that obedience. Now that leads us to the second point that's not explicitly taught by Paul in chapter 13 here, but I think it's certainly one that is in the context and it is inferred. And that is that we need to be careful to obey God. In all things. You should amen that part. Even if you didn't like the taxes part, this is a good part here. Be careful to obey God. When when Paul writes in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He, he seems to be reminding us of the words of Jesus when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, things that are owed to him. Render them to him. It's certainly an echo of his words. And Jesus was undercutting a common misconception of the state in in that time, namely that the king or the emperor was a deity or God, one who had all authority. And so Jesus, however, says yes to paying taxes to Caesar. He is at the same time saying no to worshiping Caesar. There's a big difference, isn't there? There's only one supreme authority, and he is God. 
And the fact that Paul has already said our duty in response to this gospel is to present our bodies as living sacrifices to this God. There can be only one supreme authority in our lives. And so just as Christians have such a high motive for being subject to governing authorities because they've been appointed by God, we also realize that the government is not God. And though our default position is submitting to governing authorities to the state, we do so only up to the point where obedience to the state then would lead us to disobey God. And we can't go any further than that, right? That's one of the reasons when I think we talk about the separation of the church and state, which I think is a good thing, we cannot be for a separation of the state and God. And you understand there's a big difference in that. Separation of church and state does not mean a separation of state and God. There would be no governing authorities were it not for God who gave them governing authorities. Amen? That's what he says. Ultimately, it's God and His Word that provides the truth, the the moral basis for government. I asked earlier from verses 3 and 4, who decides what is good and bad? Paul assumes it here that there's good and there's bad. At least, what basis is that decided? Has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? Well, what if the state begins to enact laws that contradict God's word? In that case, the scripture is clear. The Christian is bound to obey God and his word. In addition to praying for those who govern us, as 1 Timothy tells us, Christians also have, I think, the responsibility to speak out and to speak up when it comes to matters of morality in our our culture. Our chief message is always to speak the gospel because the gospel is the only hope for this world, right? But we also, in part of speaking the gospel, is we have to be faithful in identifying what sin is and why people need to be saved from their sins. Christians are called to be salt in the world. We're called to be a preservative and the moral decadence around us. And therefore, we should speak our values. We should exercise our right. And what a blessing it is to vote in our country, right? We should exercise that right. And biblical values should be in your mind as you think about your vote. Christians and churches should speak and teach the truth about morality when it comes to uh, marriage being between a man and a woman, even though our laws view that differently, we stand on God's word and we must continue to speak that. We should speak the truth when it comes to God's created design of two genders, male and female. He created them, not, not many genders, not hundreds, but two. We should continue to speak the truth against, uh, about violence, about sexual immorality, about idolatry, about sin. We should continue to speak up about the value of life for the unborn, the elderly, the most vulnerable among us. When, when the government 
uh, veers from God's word, we should call them to repent and turn back to God and his word. We should speak out and speak up. Sometimes it's necessary to practice civil disobedience. And we've seen several examples of this in the scripture. In Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn boys, they rightly refused to do that. When King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 issued that that. Uh, Uh, That law that everyone must fall down and worship the golden statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were right not to do that. When King Darius in Daniel chapter 6 made that law against that no one should pray for 30 days, Daniel was right to keep praying. And when the Sanhedrin banned the preaching of the apostles in Jesus' name, Acts 4, 19 and 20, the, the apostles were right to respond. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. That is right. So the Bible gives this very clear call to civil obedience, but also a clear basis for civil disobedience. Namely, if the state commands what God forbids or if the state forbids what God commands, then the Christian is bound to God. And even then, notice, we do so in a respectful way. Verse 7 says, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That, that, that would certainly include responding in ways that are biblical, that are legal, that are ethical. The state has the sword, but the church has the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the truth is stronger than the sword. But woe to us if we do not wield it carefully and powerfully and faithfully, for we will answer to God for these things. It's Jim Boyce who wrote several years ago that religious people are, therefore, the best asset a country can have and the only thing that will advance it in the direction of justice and true righteousness. And I think that is true. It's certainly unpopular today, but it's true. Church, we need to be faithful believers in Christ. Faithful. A city on a hill, as Jesus described us. A light shining in the midst of a world that is growing darker and darker. We must stand on the truth. I realize that 2 Chronicles 7.14 doesn't apply to us the same way that it did the nation of Israel. But I do think it's reminding us of some, some things that are very important. It reminds us that while we need to be thankful for our government, our hope is never in a better president or new laws being passed. Our ultimate hope, the ultimate hope for any person and nation is God. And when we who are called by his name, it says, will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Jesus Christ rules every inch of this world. 
and he exercises his authority perfectly. He rules with truth, justice, and grace. And though right now there is evil in the world, there is injustice in this world, make no mistake, as we begin our service, when Christ comes again, he will make all things right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. His truth and righteousness, his justice will prevail in the end. This is a part of our Christian hope. And you need to decide today, if you're here, what side of that justice do you want to be on? That really is what's laying underneath all of this, isn't it? You see, to set your face against Jesus and his word will only lead to his wrath in your life. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end... It leads only to death. Perhaps Psalm 2, verse 12, gives us our response, what our response, our invitation needs to be today. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But here's the good news. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. All who come to Him in repentance and submission and faith, they will find refuge. Will you do that today? Put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. Lord, we thank You for the clarity of your word today and uh, we pray for your help in doing this. These are not easy times in which we live, but Lord, we, we look to your word and your spirit to help us uh, to be subject to the governing authorities in our lives. And so, Lord, once again, we present our bodies as living sacrifices to you to do this. So give us discernment and wisdom, Lord, by your word and spirit, Prick our conscience, Lord, and how we might need to be faithful in our responses and our actions and our decisions. Lord, we pray for those today that may not know you as their Lord and Savior. That as we who have trusted Jesus have come to do, Lord, we have taken that knee and kissed the hand of the Son, acknowledging Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that. We pray that, Lord, for those among us, those listening, for friends and neighbors, that they would trust Christ and find refuge in Him. And as we close our service today, Lord, I pray that once again we would uh, express our, our commitment to You our allegiance to you and to you alone. Help us, Lord, to live that out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. 
Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.